can, um, if it would be possible, maybe get a Bible. So long, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1. Um, so just a bit of preparation for you. Say, yeah. It's so nice seeing you guys. Before I start with the sermon, I quickly want to have two or three words. Uh, so from where you are, just one word that sums up your December holiday time. Give me a few. Fine. Fun. Okay, that's better than fine. Anyone? Cute. Kids, oh. I can't hear. I can't hear. Last one. Family. Okay. That sounds very, very good. Um, so, look, guys, I really can't help myself. Before I start the sermon, I quickly want to have a teaching before the sermon so that I can have the sermon, if that's fine with you. So, what comes up when you hear the word hope? Quickly discuss. If you can't come to a definition, just what reminds you of hope. Okay. What's there? I'll give you guys exactly one minute, and I'm timing you. Okay, 10 seconds left. All right. I want you guys to conclude your thoughts. So what I want to do is quickly uh, listen to what we found out in the groups. I'm going to start on that side because they're all plechis. I know them. And we're just going to speak randomly. Okay, so Hope, what came up for you guys? Okay, something an assurance, something sure that you can hold on to. I love that. Second group.
did you guys have to say? Thank you very much. I think that's very, very valuable. Huh? Ah. No, Fangak. Yes, you all passed. I'm giving you guys three golden stars out of three. That's, that's very high marks. That's really good. This group over here. Things you you want to have in the future. Yeah. Ah, Hebrews 11. Ooh. Everything that you guys are going to be are saying, I think, is going to be in. It's in here. You must listen out for what you are saying. It's awesome. Anything else? Okay, but you can see it. Yeah. Okay, it's like that. Yeah. I really like what you guys are saying. Yeah. D did, were you guys contributing there? Nice. Very, very nice. I like that. Yeah? Anything that hasn't been said in this group? Yeah. It's the last thing standing. Yo. Well, you guys literally, like, everything that you guys are saying, I prepared in my sermon. <laughs> That's so funny. So thanks for giving me your, my sermon. Yes, I, this notes, these notes I've been writing, it's coincidental. It's, it's, it's pure coincidence that I just made all the notes that were just said. That's just said. No. So, look, the reason I... I wanted to have this is because I'm going to be exploring along with you. Okay. Now, the first thing, that, well, that actually the point that I want to contribute to this conversation is that's where we understand hope to be. Now, we're going to be delving deep this year into hope, 
And what I want us to do is to be able to rehabilitate what the authors of the Bible meant when they said the word hope. Because we all have the following in, in, in mind. It's okay, it's based on something. There's a future expectation that seems to be uncertain that we're striving for, and we think we can get there. Right? That's a, a, a rough estimate of where we can have it. And we often use it in that sense. So we can say, like they said, I hope I can buy the car by next year. Or I hope you get well. I hope so too. You know, that's the sense in which we, we mean it. The biblical sense in which the, hope, the word hope is used doesn't have the uncertainty component. So the biblical sense of hope is focused on the fixed assurance that all of you guys were alluding to. Now, just to be clear, we aren't living in a fifth of the uncertainty that the authors of the Bible are living in. <laughs> we're living in so much more comfort. But um, it can be easy to sort of read a definition of hope and then think that's what our definition of hope should be. Rather, I think it's better for us to think, oh, this is what they meant by that. How do I apply it to my situation? All right. So that's very important because I don't want to put unnecessary burdens on you. For example, I'm going to be making some very harsh and clear statements. What I want is um, soft, soft uh, ears, soft ears, ears that, that hear that it's, it's meant in this sense, the sense that this, the authors of scriptures are, are trying to convey. Also, I don't want to put a burden on you to say, you know, hope, there's nothing it, it fears. And then you sitting there, uncertain about your finances, uncertain about your future, uncertain about your health, thinking, I'm not a good Christian. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. Okay, so rehabilitation activated. Do you guys think we can agree that we should listen with empathy to what the authors are saying? Can I get that from you? Okay, okay, well. Let's get started with these notes. <laughs> I'm going to have to um, talk very figuratively because of the content of what we're going to be going through. Um, you guys can open in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23. Okay, so hope is dialogue's canvas for 2024. And we're going to be drawing and painting and coloring, and maybe if you're a child, crayoning hope all over this portrait. And no matter how happy or sad, optimistic or pessimistic or cynical or joyful or anxious you are, we're going to be exploring this inescapable reality that there is hope. So it doesn't matter what any politician says doesn't matter what circumstances you are in, doesn't matter what the news headlines says or what your algorithm on your phone is trying to convince you. There is hope. Hope. Real, real, real hope. And hope is going to be our guide. It's going to be taking us through this year. And that's the portrait that we're going to be painting. The thing is, every piece of art needs to be framed and that is the intention of this sermon. I want us to take a look at the frame around which we will be coloring in and getting to know hope. Okay. So what we're going to be talking about, it isn't exhaustive. It isn't mutually exclusive uh, categories. It's not perfect. 
but it was compelling enough for Paul to put it together. And so we are going to be meandering a little bit through this. And that's my intent for this sermon. Okay, so we're going to be exploring that. But because it's, this, is a, this, is, this is deep water stuff, Ephesians 1 is probably one of the, let's say, thickest portions of Scripture. Um, I'm going to have to use many illustrations just to, for us to sort of start to get a grip on it. All right. So let's start, open your Bibles and let's start reading. Ephesians 1, from verse 15 to 23, the context is, because you've been filled with the Spirit. Okay. And then he says, for this reason, that's you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Um, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Whew. It's a cryptic language, huh? It's very... Yeah. <laughs> I actually think this is... Yeah, this is part of one sentence, yeah, in the Greek. Ephesians 1, I think, is from verse 3, is one sentence. Paul just has one. He's trying to say all of this in one breath. Okay, well, let's get started. What you can maybe do is to turn to verse 15 so that we can get, head, uh, get going. So the first frame that we see there is all around you. So quickly take a look around you. Who do you see? Who? It's the church. The first aspect of hope, the first frame that we're going to be pausing at is you and me. We are the place in which hope lives. Now, like I said, I'm going to be using strong words. When I talk about hope, I'm talking about biblical hope. Hope ultimately. And that hope we don't find at work. We don't find it at school, at university, or in our children. We ultimately find it here, in church. Um, it's basically like the ground on which hope can be cultivated. That implies that you, each one of you, are people of hope. Isn't that astounding? This is the place of hope. Now take a look at what he says in verse 15. He says, he's heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. And sneaky, sneaky Paul. Faith, hope, and love. They're laying around. They're being cultivated here around us. So our defining attributes, the things that, get, that make us us, 
is our gathering that has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, love for one another and for him, and hope for what he's done. Do you guys see that? So these three, faith, hope, and love, are intertwined. They rely on each other. And they are the things that are being built up. And that's the place. But an interesting thing that I've discovered with this is that faith, hope, and love seem to have a direction. So a plant grows upwards, right? But our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our love is outwards. And our hope is forwards. So here's where the directions of faith and hope and love come to be. So we've got the big three among the gathering, us. And that is the first aspect we see, the first place we can go to when we, in the framework when we think about hope. The second one is prayer. Look at verse 16. I don't cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. The people of hope are people who pray. So what, what, what types of prayer is he listing here? He's listing prayer and petition. Now when we pray, we invite God to bring his reality, which is the ultimate reality, down to our shadowlands. Now obviously, because of our sense experience, we experience this as more real, and there's nothing that's not real about our experience, but it's significant to think that a far more real reality can be invited into our circumstances. That's prayer. It's the breathing out. It's laying out your soul before God. Everything, especially the bad and the bitter and the blasphemous. We should lay everything out before God. We should be a praying, praying people. But we can also enter into petition. And that's where we ask God to start interceding for the people around us. That's where our love for each other is expressed back to Him. Now if, let's say, the church is the, the soil on which hope can function, this would be the nourishment, the breathing, the oxygen for our hope. Consider this. If you're a cynical person or pessimistic, you've come to the following conclusion. I cannot change my circumstances. I've given up, and I'm going to sit back. I'm going to take a passive stance. Maybe I'll just throw a bit of this bitterness in my heart out. Right? Now, if your circumstances are really difficult, I'm not trying to say I've never been there. I've been there very much, and I like listening to black metal. So <laughs> it gets tough sometimes. But what I will say is that's not an appropriate place for the people of hope to linger. That's not our final place. Because when you are optimistic, when you have hope, you're saying that, no, I have agency in my life. I can do something about my circumstances. I'm not going to stand back and just let the world happen to me. I'm going to act as far as I can. And things can get difficult. What I find very comforting about prayer is even if we are realistically in circumstances where we can't change anything, we can't do anything, when you're praying, what are you inviting into your reality? You're inviting God's reality into yours. So even if it looks really, really, really dark, the power of prayer for hope 
is that we always have a savior who can come in. Always, no matter how dark it get, it's gonna get. And I mean, I'm not using that as an ESCO metaphor. <laughs> no matter how tough things are, we can be people of hope. So the people of hope are active. We care for the people around us enough and know each other well enough so that we can engage in prayer for each other and in our circumstances. Does that make sense? All right. Um, let's move on to the, to the third frame on which hope is built. Because here we meet the persons to which Paul is praying. So uh, read verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and knowledge of him. Who is involved in our hope? It's the triune God. God the Father, who, by the way, in Romans 15, 13, is called the God of hope. The Son, Jesus, who kind of stepped into our mess, that's kind of active, sent the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can do the things that we couldn't do on our own. That's a God that's involved. That's an active God. But that has a few implications. If God is involved, consider this. He made you so that he can love you. That means that your life has meaning. It has a purpose. No matter what we hear outside, you are not just here randomly. You have a significant part to play, no matter how small you may see, uh, think it could be. Furthermore, think about Jesus. I imagine this fact. Jesus actively desires you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. The Holy Spirit is empowering us every every single day that's a God who's here that's a God that makes our lives worthwhile so let's say we have the garden we have the nourishment of prayer but we've also got a gardener who's active who's pruning who's planting who's watering who's involved and that's the third area or space that I want us to touch on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus a bit on the Holy Spirit and then we'll move back to Jesus because from here on Paul gets sort of difficult to pull apart. We're going to now start looking at what the Holy Spirit does in us as we engage in this area of hope. So verse 18 or oh, verse 17. So first of all um, he may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of the knowledge of him. Okay, so there's an active thing that we experience the Holy Spirit doing in our lives. He's implanting knowledge, he's revealing things to us, and he's giving us wisdom. Now, let's pause for a moment and think about what these things are. Let's start with wisdom. Wisdom is the foundation by which everything is made. We read that in Proverbs 8. Without wisdom, the world wasn't made. Wisdom is proper to who God is himself. Wisdom is a way of life. 
If you think of the, the words of, prophets, of, of Proverbs, it's to make us wise and wisdom to walk in a certain way. It's what's given to the people in the Bible to create. Our force of creativity is given through wisdom. Think about the ark that's being um, made. God gives them a spirit of wisdom so that they can be excellent in what they do. It's also synonymous to the power of God, the wisdom of God and the power of God. And ironically, Jesus is also known as the wisdom of God, and he's the word, and he's the power. And that is incredible. Knowledge fills our mind. Knowledge is revealed to us. So what we have is we're being cultivated in an area, but then we're be being filled with revelation. That is, from outside of us, something is opened up to us, and we are being imparted with knowledge and wisdom. So here is the direction of this. God reveals it down, at least in the order in which um, Paul means it, to the prophets, to the Messiah, to the apostles. And they go out and reveal it to the people around them. Does that make sense? So there's a directionality to this. So revelation comes from above. It gets given to the... Remember, this is an order of salvation statement. So this isn't just here um, how it works. But then it gets revealed outwards. From up, out. What's our response? We are like a lighthouse so when we think about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives think about a trading post or a lighthouse why does a lighthouse exist it's to warn to give direction ah, here's rocks hmm? it's dark it provides light that's what we should be when we receive from God what happens is we receive light from above and we can see the danger to the people around us. We can see it. And we can provide light, help, direction. For who is the lighthouse? Is the lighthouse for itself? No. This light that we're receiving, it's for the people around us. We are not the intention. Finally, knowledge and wisdom can only come when it's given, when it's being transmitted. And so in a sense, when you are sitting and receiving with an open spirit uh, the teachings and the, the sermons at church, the public attestation, you yourself are going to be growing in the knowledge of what the spirit is doing. Okay. Now, I want to read to you a piece uh, by Marcus Barth. Uh, I, so it's not our Marcus and I'm not trying to say he needs to bath um, it depends how far you stand from him um, okay so this is a different Marcus so he says the following it was shown that wisdom and knowledge imparted by the spirit are not limited to perception learning and theoretical insight but we show the wise man how to live very critically. It is characteristic that knowledge cannot exist without growth and expansion. A knower remains a learner 
and knowledge will always seek to give others a share in its contents. Therefore, wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment, when they are given to a man, do anything but make him passive. They activated or they activate the man who was formerly blind, not only um, blackened out mentally, but also walking in darkness. That's what scripture uh, describes us as, as we were walking in darkness. Um, but darkness itself, um, so darkness itself, as a keen formulation, and now we are made light in the Lord, as Ephesians 5 says. So what he's saying is the following. We can't just listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying and take it in and get revelation and then think, huh, that's interesting. The end. What happens here, what happens when we open up the scripture, when we talk to God, when he reveals things to us, when he talks to us in our spirit, when we listen to these sermons, is we ourselves are changed Friends, if you are in a position where what you are hearing now is the equivalent of a 30 seconds card, you're at the wrong place. So there's this guy, uh, John Verfake, he's a, uh, a cognitive psychologist. He talks about the tyranny of facts. We are in an age where we learn at an incredible rate. We have all the knowledge in the world available to us. And he calls it an absolute tyranny because the more we find out about the broadness of life, the more we are captured in by it because we ourselves have put knowledge in its improper place. Real knowledge is what he calls participative knowledge. That means what we learn changes us and we participate in it. Knowledge gives it to us so that we can be active. I, I mean, I can't stress this enough. I mean, you, you're listening to a guy who's read a short history of nearly everything three times. I, I love Wikipedia. I mean, I get a problem. I've seriously got a problem. It doesn't help me one bit to know that Cape Town is a capital city in South Africa. Have you experienced Cape Town? Have you climbed Table Mountain? Have you seen it from the top? That's the difference between the tyranny of facts and putting on another podcast, putting on another podcast, putting on another podcast, and then actually being changed by that incredible view that's just struck you. And that is what the Holy Spirit does in us. When we allow the Spirit to change us, we can learn a fraction of the things we learn here in dialogue. Really, I, I mean, I keep on saying this. We're spiritually gluttonous. We've got so much knowledge that's just flowing out here every Sunday. We're so lucky. We really are fortunate. When we participate in the Spirit, when we are praying, a greater proportion of what we are learning is becoming who we are. And that's where people of hope should be headed. And that is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do with us. Are you guys still tracking with me? Okay. That's just crazy, huh? Now, the first thing that the Spirit did for us 
um, on the frame is revealed to us. Now, um, a second thing I just want to point out is right after the section, he also talks about how our hearts have to be enlightened. And that's very critical. Because the second frame, or part of the frame that the Holy Spirit gives us, is an inheritance. And this is where that original definition I wanted to linger on really becomes re relevant. Listen to this. Um, so God, uh, where's verse 18? So that we can know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What is that? What's the riches of his glorious inheritance? Anyone want to venture a guess? I don't think just one answer is enough, by the way. Um, okay, so just to color it in a little bit for us, listen to the words of a fellow of Paul. So in 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, if you guys want to turn there, he, he sort of puts this in very, very clear terms. It's funny when you start reading the New Testament and you start realizing, oh, they must have had similar teachings, a corpus of teachings that Jesus gave that they're disseminating through their works. Listen to this, verse 3 and verse 4. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Incredible. What Peter's saying is, oh, praise God. He's, been, he's given us this incredible inheritance. What is that? We've been saved. We've got something to look forward to, to that can never be taken away from us. It's undefiled. It's kept in heaven. We're waiting for it. It's something we hold on to. And I feel that that is something to be excited about. When we think about inheritance, um, we obviously think about something that's handed down in the family. Now, in the, in the ancient Roman world, there wasn't a thing like an orphanage. didn't exist. You threw out the babies you didn't want, especially if they're girls. Because who wants a girl, right? That's what they thought. But if you're, um, I don't know, a Caesar and uh, your succession isn't sure, you could appoint an adult who then becomes your adopted son who can then get the inheritance. When Paul says we've been adopted, that means we've been taken into his family. We've been saved. He's become our big brother, our savior, uh, Jesus now. And we take part in a glorious inheritance that's being kept for us. Let's move on. Whew, now this one is, let's say, broad. Because the third working of the Spirit in us is a demonstration of His power. So let's read here. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. There's a lot of power language there. Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Okay, let's 
try to break this down a little bit. First of all, he points to the fact that Jesus really loved us. He really desires you. He saved us. He was crucified and he was raised. That's something to put our hope in. And that's a strong exertion of his power. Look, with each one of these things that we're going to be focusing on, every little or, or different dimension of God's power, we're going to start seeing more of the biblical definition of hope. We can really trust this God. He conquered all sin by dying. He's stronger than that. He died for everything you can do. I mean, you can't stand before a holy God, even though he's trying to come to you. He fixed that up for you. He, he rose from the dead. He experienced everything we experience. And right now, he's currently interceding for you. He knows that I am a sinner and I mess up a lot. And he knows that you are a sinner and you mess up a lot. He knows it so well that he continues to intercede. If he didn't, you would have been able to save yourself. Right? So that is the power that we see that he used when he, he, he saved us. He's also been raised to the right hand of the Father. That's the second aspect. Now, why is that significant? Well, I, I think that's significant for Paul's time especially because how can a man be God? That whole question. But it means that even though nothing less than the fullness of God was here on earth, people were looking at God himself. We can say we can relate to nothing more than a human in heaven, a guy who really understands us. That's comforting. He really knows what we are like. He knows we're made of dust. We can talk to him. We can pray to him. And that's an incredible exertion of his power. The third thing is if we read on. Far above all rule and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but the age to come. We're reading Ephesians. The theme of spiritual darkness is repeated three times. This is probably the, the shortest little hint we see of it. So I want to add this as another aspect of God's power, another aspect of the frame that we're, we're going to lay out so that we can better understand hope. Guys, spiritual evil is a thing. It's there in Genesis 1. It's there in Genesis 3. It's all over the Pentateuch and the histories of Israel. It's very, very clear in Job. It's very clear in Nehemiah. It's very, very clear with the building and the rebuilding of the, of the temple. It's all over the Psalms. And Jesus himself faces evil. Paul says, look, there are evil beings, beings that are not aligned with the will of God, that want to kill, crush, destroy. Their mother tongue is lying. They don't want you to become an image of God more clearly. They will do anything in their power to destroy that. If you are facing resistance, you're, in the head, you're headed in the right direction. Now let's put this into perspective. These spiritual forces are against God's creation. They are not God's equal. This isn't World War I, where you've got comparative armies sort of stuck in deadlock. What's happened here? 
is we have a class of being above the spiritual beings. There's one creator God, and there are created spiritual beings. Our war isn't against the uncreated God. It's against spiritual forces. That means whatever you put your hope in, it's untouchable. It's immovable. Friends, our hope is greater than any trial we can face. Now, I wish I had some nugget that I could share here with you, but I just want to make an observation, and please, if, if you get, gain some insight into this, I'm curious about this. It gets more fully explored, I think, in the end of chapter 3, and f but beginning of 4, but then chapter 6, we have the famous armor of God, right? Once again, something we actively clothe ourselves in. And what we have is we have the belt of truth. We've got the, the breastplate of righteousness, you know, the, the helmet of salvation. We've got the sword of truth. What's the belt? Belt? Both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the word of God. Yeah, yeah, And we've got the, the shoes of readiness, and we've got the bow of hope. Oh, wait. Whatever's involved in our fight against the spiritual beings doesn't seem to be affected or affecting our hope as much. Now, faith and hope are deeply interlinked, like I said. So in, in, in um, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things um, hoped for, um, the evidence of things not seen. So because of our faith in who the person of God is, we have hope, a surety. So I see that. I also don't see love there. <laughs> we don't attack the devil with love. <laughs> That's just something interesting that I, I want to put out there. The last thing that I want to throw out around what the Spirit does for us is that our participation in these realities, you have been justified and made right. You have been saved. You are no longer a slave you have been adopted. You have been made one in Christ. The proportion to which you participate in that, the degree to which you grow into that, will be the degree and the proportion to which you will have hope. What I'm trying to say is the following. You don't become a Christian... And then you're like, man, I'm saved. And you go through that high and you want to convert everyone and God is awesome. And then, ooh, the trials come and then you start realizing, oh, I'm really sinful. Oh, I'm more sinful than I thought. And then you start going through difficult times and God starts forming you. And you sort of move away from these truths. You know, I started with Jesus saved me. I've been really saved. I'm loved. No. What I'm saying is, the deeper you go into these truths, the core, the more your hope will grow. That's what it means. Now, I mean, this is dialogue. Let's call our spiritual knowledge a surface area. You can know a lot. You can know it. But it's not touching you. And you can be completely anxious, overwhelmed, without joy, struggling continually in sin instead of having that every now and then. Or you can say, I am so 
deepening myself in the reality of what God is doing. I'm participating, I'm praying in who God is that I cannot be shaken. Do you guys see that, 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 that difference? And that is the last thing that I want to give us for when we think about the dimensions of our hope. This isn't something to start off with, and that's cute. This is the reality that keeps on changing us. And friends, if you're struggling with something, if you're going through difficult times, go back to the basics. Look to Jesus. Look to what the Spirit does to us or in us. The last aspect, or the second last aspect, is, uh, and then the second last frame, we get uh, in verse 22 at the end. So he put all things under his feet, that's to say Jesus is above everything, and gave him as the head of all things to the church. Now, like I said, we started out over here, looking around here, right? We are the place of where hope exists. The second last frame is that our appropriate authority, our head, is the person of Jesus. He's been made our head. So it's appropriate that when we have struggles, when we meet something in Scripture, when we bump into something that sits uncomfortable surrounding the hope that we're going to be finding out more and more about, it's appropriate for you to run to Him. He really loves you. He's got this. It also implies another thing. You are not the primary source of authority in your life. If you've made your allegiance to Jesus. Okay. The last one is Jesus' role. He is our head. So the last frame is verse 23. So he is our head. He's been given to the church. We are his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now what I want to say is we end where we begin. We started off saying we have faith in Jesus and we love one another. But what we see is we've been filled by Jesus. Now that's an outside-in reality. That's a reality we can always ponder on. The more we think about the fact that Jesus fills us through the Holy Spirit, the more we ourselves can love, the more we can hope, the more we have faith. And He fills us. And so friends, let's take a look at the summary of this non-exhaustive, maybe but random frame of which um, hope will be painted in. We have each other, the people of hope, who are praying people who are active. And we are praying for God to bring heaven to earth. We are praying that he can change the reality of the people around us. We care and love for one another. We pray to an active God of hope, a God who intercedes, a God who works in us currently, who is with us, who understands us, who loves us, who imparts knowledge, revelation, understanding, wisdom into us so that we can't win in Christian 30 seconds, but rather that we participate in God and are changed, becoming more to His likeness, understanding that He's a God that loves us, that is active in our lives, that is far more powerful than anything we can possibly understand, a God who crushed Satan under His feet and who is going to continue doing that.
And finally, we participate in him, our final authority. The God who loves us and who fills us from the outside in. So I, I want to leave us with a, a little benediction. And that's in Romans 15, 13, the one I just referenced now. Um, let me read that for us. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you that you've opened up new spaces for us to explore when we engage in this year of hope. Thank you that you are God who's active. Thank you that you don't stand by, that you're not passive. Thank you that you're reliable, that you're powerful, that you have an inheritance for us. Thank you that you fill us. Thank you that we can love, that we can care for one another. I pray that this year, no matter what we experience, that we'll start seeing you more as the God of hope. Amen.